Hey everybody, <laughs> welcome back Bye. to the Holland Up Runners podcast and Holland Up Runners Live. That was our lovely new intro we made for the finale. With Thank God we're only using that once. <laughs> only one time. <laughs> it's uh, a crime I'm AJ, joined here by my bombad Mandalorian apostates. Ooh, that's us. Ooh. But oh. we're on our way to the living waters of Mandalore, so wow. our guests can be happy with us. Emily Swallow, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Of course, yeah. We're thrilled to um talk, to, yeah, talk about many things with you. So yeah. um I'm yeah. still sort of getting my voice back from celebration. <laughs> two weeks ago. That's very oh, fair. That's very fair. Um but yeah, people are probably wondering like how we were able to get you for our show. And there is a backstory to that, um, with you and Jack. So Jack, I don't know if you want kind of want to tell this or, you know, you and Emily tell it because obviously it's it's your story. So, um, well, yeah, yeah, I we can certainly I think it's certainly best to tell it together. You <laughs> got it. Um, I remember uh, when I first uh, went up to just like say hi and everything. Um, uh, I had noticed that, that like a fan like she had a fan made hammer there. And at that point, I, I, I when I saw it, it was duct taped and, and, and so it <laughs> It had been through some stuff and you know it happens like that's the that's the challenge with props um and i saw it and i was like i was i was in my armor at the time you know like like for context and i was just like i know i can do i can do something like that for her so i was like emily please just let me let me make this for you i have extra paint like like that's the most expensive part yeah and then uh like like, like i i i sent it to her and and that was that well hold on let me interrupt <laughs> you because we did please talk go through. ahead so I, I had been traveling with this hammer to conventions. I used to travel with a helmet that a fan had made me, but it turns out like that's really a pain in the butt to travel with all the time. <laughs> um, and uh, and so I started traveling with this hammer because it was a great thing to have at my table for photo ops. And also, especially like with little kids, like if the little kids were shy, like you just give them the hammer and they instantly melt or if they're misbehaving. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> come down a little bit you don't hit him with the hammer um, no. <laughs> and so so i said to jack i you know i was like i love having this hammer but it had broken in my suitcase and so mm. i was like trying to masterfully like you know put my hand over the duct taped part and then i would tell people oh well yeah it broke when i was beating up some stormtroopers um <laughs> but it was really janky and so jack told me that he could make one and he could make it so that it would hopefully not break in my suitcase, but would also be lightweight enough that it wouldn't, you know, totally weigh down my bag. And um, so I was very intrigued and I said, yes, please. And then he did indeed do that because he is very generous and crafty. <laughs> that he is. Yeah. And and um, so like that, that like was a very delicate process because when you have a hammer like this, like, like, you know, how do you lay it so that it doesn't you know the paint doesn't like stick on certain surfaces or like like whatever you have it laying on so i remember that like it was like thanksgiving time i was like very carefully trying to get that that right and like it was cold out so i was like oh man that paint that paint could react bad at any moment uh but it all went well and it was so exciting to to see that like when i 
see fans uh, with photos of you, it's like, I made that. And it's just such a great feeling uh, to have that connection. And that was like enough for me. And then I, I remember lamenting that I didn't have enough time uh, or, or my, my sewing machine was so out of whack. I was like, I, I wanted to make a bag for it. So like, I was like, oh man, I remember the rough dimensions. I'm going to make a bag and, and I know she'll be at Rhode Island Comic Con the next year. And um, so I made that. And so when I went to uh, stand in line, uh, I was with my girlfriend, Abby and uh, her Cara Dune. Um, and I was like, hey, made you a bag for it just so that's even easier to carry around. Cause I know like, you know, like I'm always terrified of scratching that. That fell over the other day and uh, thankfully not a scratch on it. No breaks or nothing. I was like, well, the armor made it just right. <laughs> Din does fall over a lot. So that's very, yeah. very funny. Yeah. So I mean, he, the, the thing that happened so much in the last episode that I couldn't get over was how many times somebody grabbed him around the neck and yanked him back. Yeah, sorry but i digress right well, we'll get and, to that for sure yeah. um uh I, yeah to, to to make a long story short um i remember uh getting a text like when i woke up and and i don't know it was a i think it was an insta or whatever where uh emily had reached out and was like hey i got this idea Emily, i don't know if you want to take it from here so yeah i would love to um so also, over the course of my conventioning, I had done a convention in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, that was um, completely for all the proceeds were going to an organization called Voices Against Cancer, um, which is an incredible initiative started by primarily by families of children who are going through cancer treatment, families who have lost children to cancer, and it's focused on funding pediatric cancer research. Um, but also really providing support to the families of those kids so that, you know, obviously the kids need help. They need medical help. They need emotional support. They need, you know, we want research to be cutting edge. We want all the, the latest advancements, but also it, it impacts the entire family. You know, the siblings of those kids need help. There's financial support that's needed. And I felt like um, I was just so moved by the way this community um, that was largely also supported by the 501st and their, you know, their local chapter, um, the way that they just circled up and they, they raised all this money and, um, and they were just so positive and proactive and generous and gracious. And so I started working with them and I'm, I'm an ambassador for them. And so at every, almost every convention I do, I had been raffling off, uh, on autograph Funko Pop, and I would sell raffle tickets for $5. Um, and all the proceeds, you know, would go to Boys Against Cancer. And, um, and then at some point, I just, I was like, I want to up the ante here, you know, there's, I mean, because everybody, like, so many people came who already had Funko Pops, or who didn't really want another Funko Pop. And, um, and I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have something much more unique to raffle off. And so I asked Jack how he would feel about making more hammers um, that I could take to conventions with me and that I could offer for the raffle. Um, and he immediately said yes, and then began a rather painstaking process of building. How many hammers are you building right now? I've got about 10 or so. There's a couple of rejects. I don't want to uh, take any further. I'm like, mm, now nah, you aren't worth trying to make and like make work. So I got a couple <laughs> I need to reprint, but 
uh we're looking i think 11 or so and like we've we've raffled one off but um uh, yeah it was like when the armorer asks asks you for beskar you don't say no so it was like, <laughs> yeah no we can make this happen um and, and, and i appreciate was, the outsourcing because i've always wondered how on earth the armorer manages to make armor for everybody like she needs an apprentice it takes a village. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, and and uh, I don't know if you want to share like uh, we the the first one we did like just gave me so much inspiration to get these going because it was yeah. so exciting. So previously, the most we had raised in a weekend with the raffle was around eight hundred dollars for a Funko Pop, and the first one that I have raffled off was at MegaCon in Orlando, and we raised I think it was twenty six hundred dollars. Um, which was just incredible. And everybody was yeah. so excited about it. And, uh, and I had, I mean, the volunteers get so excited about it and they were like walking up and down the line, selling the tickets and, and, you know, it, it's five bucks and everybody, um, unfortunately, like everybody has been touched by cancer in some way. And so it's, yeah. it's something that people feel really positive about donating money to. And it's also, um, something that gets conversation going and gets, and you know, it, it, I, I have formed relationships with people, um, because we've gotten to share stories about how cancer has impacted our lives. And, um, and so it's yet another way that, that, uh, relationships have been formed at conventions and it's just, it's been really, really cool. Yeah. yeah it's, it, it's, it's so unique. Like I, I honestly have never really encountered like another, um, celeb encounter experience like this at a convention where like they are raffling off a prop like that that is so unique in the first place and so i'm so excited yeah. that like you are like using this opportunity and like using jack's expertise as well because like i, I could speak for us as a trio and for everyone locally we love jack so much with his 3d printing skills and the fact Poor that like guy. you guys have this partnership like it's he made me that it's fantastic it. yeah like <laughs> i'm just like so proud of all of this <laughs> Thank you, thank you, and it, yeah, like when when I heard the total, I I was shocked, and and it was like, all right, well, I, let's keep doing this, let's keep doing this as long as we can, because this is exciting and it's it's so rewarding. Because yeah, no, you, you're absolutely right, Emily. I mean, my dad uh, recently survived uh, esophageal cancer, which is not an easy one to survive, but in any case, it was a horrifying year as we've like you know tried to battle that, and so like nothing makes me happier than to try to fight cancer. Um, yeah. So uh, the other thing that uh, I know is uh, exciting for you and that like like people, I think, wonder a lot uh, uh, when it comes to the armor, like, oh, does Emily know how to how to do any of that kind of stuff? Um, I wanted to give you a chance to plug, uh, you know, what you got going on Saturday night. Yes. Um, so I I have learned. Well, first of all, I've learned that there's a big difference between space blacksmithing and real <laughs> earth bound blacksmithing um but i have gotten to learn the foundations of earthbound blacksmithing with this incredible guy named tony swatton who yeah. is sort of like this unsung secretive hero in hollywood because he's had to sign all these ndas so he's basically not ever allowed to say that he's worked on something um and I didn't even know that I broke his NDA when I posted about him. <laughs> but nobody got mad, so I guess it was fine. Um, yeah, he the, the first season of Mando, I had there was a blacksmith that they brought in to work with me on set, like on the day. Excuse me, that's my dog barking. Um, on the day that that we were shooting those scenes, but it was sort of a mess because it 
it's not, you know, and I, I had tried to sort of like study up and, and uh, learn what I could, but it's, it's a hard thing to try to like learn as you're being shot, as you are wearing a helmet, as you are wearing giant gloves that John called my oven mitts that were like <laughs> really like, it was hard to pick things up. It was hard to tell if I was grabbing anything. I couldn't feel. Um, and then they wanted things to look a certain way. And so we were sort of like changing from the foundation of the, the craft, like before I really understood the foundation. So when um, season three came around in the book of Boba Fett, I wanted to get a, a head start on it. Um, and so I got in touch with uh, Josh, who does our, our props on the show and asked him, you know, if he had any suggestions and he said, Oh, well, you should just go to the guy who like built your hammers and built the armor that we use on the show. And I said, that would be fantastic. So he sent me to Tony and, um, and Tony is just unbelievable. He's, I mean, he, I don't think his hands are ever clean. His fingernails constantly have soot and, you know, grease oh, yeah, and dirt under them. And his shop is incredible. He's got like every machine imaginable from, you know, stuff that goes back to when you had to like hand crank something and the very rudimentary things of, you know, basic hammering, but then he's got power hammers and he's got all this modern equipment and it's just incredible. And so he taught me the the foundations of it and the history of it, which was also really interesting to see the role that, um, that blacksmiths have played in cultures. And it gave me so much of a deeper appreciation for where the armor sits within the Mandalorian culture and why um, why she would be so revered beyond the things that we already know about her, just having that position. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I have worked with, with Tony a bit. And now this weekend, um, through another group called Momentus, um, we are doing a live stream meet and greet zoom kind of thing where tony and i are gonna make um a beskar spear don't tell um it was sort of <laughs> the easiest thing to make in a short amount of time it was easier to do than actual like pieces of armor um and uh and then we're gonna answer questions and we'll have a little you know meet and greet with people who have signed up for that and i'm just excited because Tony is so charismatic and has so much passion for it. And I've definitely come to meet a lot of people again at the conventions who already have a love for metal for metalwork and blacksmithing. And it's really cool to them to see this character who has become so prominent, who is a blacksmith. And, um, you know, that's not terribly common. So that information you can go to, um, on Instagram, you can go to bmoment.us, bmoment us, um, to find information about that. Or I don't know, is there some way that I can like put a link in a chat or uh, something? We can we, link we, it on our social. Or um... I'm pretty sure if you Google the Fandalorian, it pops up pretty quick. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's called okay. the Fandalorian. Fandalorian. Yeah. That's easy. I'll grab it and drop it in the chat. And if you, <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, that's that's like so cool. Um, and we'll definitely be tuning in for that. Like. I don't know to be the armorer in Mando and actually have the the first real no real world um, look into being an armor in real life and doing blacksmithing like that is really cool. Uh, we do have a couple of questions that people sent in to us that I kind of chose two randomly. 
one of them had to do with that, but I guess I'll still play it. Um, they sent a video in. This is our friend Nick oh. who sent this in. So here we go. Hello. My question is, did you receive any formal blacksmith training for your role as the armorer on The Mandalorian? So Yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> it was like the Jeopardy, <laughs> like, you know, answering it backwards, the yeah. question out there. But uh, very nice Cobb Vanth armor in the background behind him there. It was nice. Um, but yeah, that was a question from Nick, and we sort of talked about that. We have a question from our friend Dylan. And this is a really cool question. Uh, what did you? What do you think is the most important theme presented in Star Wars, and how does the armor connect to those themes? Oh wow! So well, I don't know. A deep one. Anytime somebody asks me to choose like the most important or my most favorite, I'm like, oh, I can't. I know. Um, and far be it for me to say what the most important theme is in Star Wars. One of the themes that's been so important to me with the armorer is this. Um, commitment to community and um and a selflessness and a, a sense of service that transcends everything else um and i think that also is something that is is unfortunately rarer than we need to see i think in in a lot of stories these days that we have this this character who is a, a mentor um and sort of a a leader of a group of people, but not a leader who, you know, I had so many people who who have asked me along the way, like, well, why doesn't the armor just take the dark saber and rule Mandalore? And and I've always felt like she has no desire to rule Mandalore. She is always in service of the greater good of her people. She's in service of um all along the way, she I think she's been in service of Din Djarin and trying to make him the best that he can be, even when she banished him. You know, I feel like that was because she knew that this was something that he needed to, he really needed to take stock of why he had removed his helmet and what that meant to him. And I think she knew that um, he would probably learn more from the challenge than from just like getting a pass. Um, and I think that, 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 sense of community and that sense of service and also really having faith. I mean, she's a character to me that stands for, that represents a great deal of faith. And, um, and I think that that's something that we see all throughout Star Wars. We have these characters who have ideals that they really hold on to and they really have faith when they're, they're faced with all sorts of ridiculous odds against them that good will win. Um, and that if they hold to these ideals, that even if they have to go through a lot of turmoil on the way, that they're going to be better off in the end. Like even if they lose technically, because they're staying true to this commitment that they have that they have um, they have held to be so dear. Um, and I think seeing people of that integrity and with that kind of hope. Um, is so resonant, and that's something that I've always attached to in the in the Star Wars movies and in the shows. And and I think that too, the armor is somebody who um, who has a lot of faith in in the people around her and in the greater good. Um, and it's been such a gift to get to embody somebody like that. Yeah, 
And Jeez, you, you undersold yourself. You you had that you had that nailed down. That was great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like George always says, hope, right? Like, like that's yeah. that's exactly Faith and hope, it. you yeah. know, that's exactly mm-hmm. it is right. And it's it's funny after you say that. all those things, like I feel so bad. And I'm not the only one, but coming into this season, <laughs> coming into this season, and this was kind of an inside joke here, and not even an inside joke, but AJ, what I have always, you said the entire season mm-hmm. about all of this? I, not the entire season. <laughs> Halfway through I changed, but I thought the children of the watch and the armorer herself were kind of like not not villains, but maybe like Bo Katan calls them a cult. And I'm like, well, I don't know, but that's her point of view. And certainly she's changed her mind now, as have I. I've come around just like Bo Katan. Um, but I see people in the chat mentioning that a lot of people thought the armor was the spy even last week. Oh my gosh. And like, <laughs> yeah, yes. what a week for you. <laughs> what, what I'm trying to get to is like, what what is your thought to these people that kind of thought you were a villain this whole time? I, I don't know if it's just the look with the horns and the, the, the mysteriousness. Horns the horns don't help. And the whole, I mean, I don't think people love the whole you have to wear a helmet thing. It yeah. is what it is. But I get it. Yeah. I think, well, first of all, I think that we, we don't like rules. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it has, like, I feel like the, the thing of keeping on your helmet is this external display of an internal value. And I think over time amongst the Mandalorian people, it got to be where there was too much focus on this external display. And I think that happens in, in, in religions, I think that that happens with, um, you know, anytime we, like, we, we might make a, a New Year's resolution um, that we want to stick to something because ultimately it's going to improve our well-being. It's going to make us feel better about ourselves. It's going to make us a better person in the world. And yet we can often lose track of, like, why it is we want to do that thing. And we keep looking at the external result and, you know, if it's something that we can check off and if it's something that we can show other people and we lose sight of maybe like why we wanted to do that thing in the first place. Um, and I think with the, I think people, I understand why people have felt like children of the watch were a, a cult. Um, and, and I think that, that it, it's easy to just make the helmet a target of that misunderstanding Um or that frustration at, at what a lot of people have seen as rigidness. And look, I mean, the armor changed too, because she did go from telling Din that he wasn't a Mandalorian because he took off his helmet to recognizing that this thing of taking off your helmet had become a major obstacle to Mandalorians being able to communicate and to support each other. And at the end of the day, I think she realized too, especially seeing what, what Bo had displayed in terms of the the internal um, show of what it means to be a Mandalorian, that it couldn't be as simple as have you kept on or removed your helmet? Um, maybe in the past that had been linked to something much deeper, but I think that it, it had become this surface thing. And, uh, and it's still, I love that like now we're at this point where there's some Mandalorians that are going to keep on their helmets and that makes them feel like they are truer, but they are accepting the people who don't. And 
They can agree to disagree. And that's, I think, the most important thing. I think it's not who's right and who's wrong about like, should you keep your helmet on? Should you take it off? But can we respect the views of the other side and move forward together because Mandalorians are stronger together? And I think that that's a message that, of course, applies to society. And I'm so glad that it that it it wound up that way. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's great. And I think, yeah, Din, go ahead, Din, Din kind of helps the armor loosen up a lot over the course of the show. You know, at the beginning of this season, she's like, "Oh no, uh, Mandalore's dead," and then he shows up and he's like, "Look at this green rock. It's not, it's not dead." And she's like, <laughs> "You might be right." Uh, and then again, you know, at the end of the season, oh, you know, you can't take this little freaky green dude as your son, and he's like, "But what if I can?" And she's like, "All right," you know. So it's like. <laughs> She, he helps her loosen up with the rules. And I think that, you know, it's. Well, it's I think she helps him take middle. responsibility. It's, it I mean, you know, he's like, hey, make make Grogu a, a Mandalorian apprentice. And she's like, well, sorry, he doesn't have parents. And like, he hasn't been willing up until that point to say, like, I will claim him as my son. And mm-hmm. so I feel like they're sort of pushing each other. You know, she wants him to say the thing. Um, oh, that's and then a good he finally point. does. That's a really good point. I never thought of that. Sends him to Mandalore so that he can see for himself that it might not be uh, desolate. You know, so it's the same thing. Um, that's a good point. After uh, a book of Boba Fett, the way the armor spoke about uh, Bo, um, it seemed like there was going to be some kind of standoff between the two if they ever got yeah, right? on, on the same on the same plane. And so, like, <laughs> I remember the moment that uh, that like they landed, I was like, "Oh, here it comes!" And then like. There wasn't really much at all. Uh, were you surprised that that was the direction like that the armor took with Bo, or did that seem right to you, like that she would? No, that seemed totally in to character. Her. Yeah, I don't think that she, you know, when she said Bo Katan is a cautionary tale, I think she was just talking about the way Bo acted at that time in that situation. Mm. And that's true. I think that Bo, when she presented herself, was a different person. Um, and it's so interesting to me how easy it is for people to hear. I don't even want to use the word negative, but I guess like. It was honest criticism. Yeah, it was honest criticism about Bo. But and and people immediately say like, oh, well, that means they're going to fight. That means she doesn't like her. That means she. But she was just <laughs> yeah. saying like, look, girlfriend did not act as well as she could have in this situation. And things didn't go well, hmm. but people change. Yeah, and, and like when Bo labels it a cult, like that—that that was a damning moment for the covert, and uh, it made it really hard to see them as anything else when he suddenly was ostracized for it. But uh, this season was just so cool to see uh, Mandalorians of all different cultures—the way they like grapple with things, like, "Hey, how do we all eat together?" Like. Yeah, what a what an amazing moment! Uh, Still got to figure was, that one out. Yeah, I was wearing a jet jetpack in that final episode. Like, did you get to do those uh, oh, yeah. those stunts? Oh yeah, I didn't get to do all the fun like wire stuff with the flying. Wow. I so wish they still don't want to do the cool stuff. To. Oh, you didn't get rigged up. You didn't get uh, wired up. No. Uh, it wouldn't let I, me. I loved her. I loved her jetpack. It was like so fitting. It was like Isn't a it fashion fashionable. Statement. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The armor exactly. is so fashionable. Yeah, yeah. I mean the, the oh. fur. The fur definitely does it. It's cool. It does. Um, it adds. It adds a lot to it. I just. I yeah. admire her. Her tenacity to keep the hammer, 
even when she's flying with a jetpack in in the middle of a battle filled with blasters, and she's just right? bopping people on the head with a with that a was hammer. awesome. That's just great. <laughs> that was so that one awesome. shot where you just, where she just like came through yeah, right through the camera. Yeah, <laughs> it's very satisfying. Very. Well, and that was something that that we did discuss because we we did shoot some stuff with, and I think there was even a shot of the the concept art where she had a big blaster. Yeah. And we talked yeah. about that. And um and I'm so glad that 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 it it wound up that way that they did only use the stuff with the hammer and tongs because that feels so right to her. Yeah. Um and that was something that I know Latif really fought for. Um, because he, mm. in addition to being, you know, amazing capoeira extraordinaire, um fighting Din Djarin, he also consults on a lot of the fights and and he's sort of been the the through line with the the combat since season one because he's he's been here the whole time and we've had a couple of different stunt coordinators who are amazing but you know we just haven't had the same person all the way through um and I think that he really has such a good sense for what is right for these characters um and so I know that he was a big advocate for that. And I was, I was really hopeful that they would, that they would keep to just the hammer and tongs. And I mean, it's so satisfying. And I, I had so much fun. Somebody sent me a link to this YouTube video of reactions to that scene where um, they're ambushing the pirates and the armor goes in there with yes. the hammer yeah. It was the most satisfying thing to watch. <laughs> That entire sequence, I remember um, when we were chatting about it afterwards, because um, we just do like the one day later talking about it. Um, my immediate reaction was, how did the armor get to the planet? Because you didn't have your jetpack yet. So you were immediately just like there, just like whoosh, she just like appeared and like it was just a little magical. So that way. <laughs> Who carried you? Who carried I mean, I will tell you, we did shoot um, a scene of me walking off a ship, but that wasn't in there. So okay. I like okay. that she just appears. <laughs> It is cooler because it's like, where is she? And then all of a sudden she appears with the uh, in that office, in yeah. Grief's office, I think it was. And then I love the the tong move of grabbing the guy by the collar. Oh my gosh, yes. That was amazing. It's just so visceral. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. She's that crunch down there. Oh, man. Yeah, like I, I didn't think you could top the uh, the fight in, in the end of season one until yeah. we just got to see the armor in action this season. It's been yeah. very fun. I see someone mention um, Paz's son, Ragnar. So what was it like having Ragnar? Uh, that was um, uh, Jimmy Kimmel's son, I believe. His nephew. Wesley nephew. Kimmel. Okay. Okay. Jimmy yeah. Kimmel's nephew. Um, like that's how the season started. And that's kind of how the season ended yeah. with Ragnar's little um, ceremony. And I thought that was kind of a cool little bookend to the yeah, season. Yeah. Cause he never really got the full ceremony at the beginning. It yeah. Got the alligator. Uh... By a very rude, uninvited guest. Yeah. Um, and it could have happened yeah. again at the end. Yeah, but, I was gonna uh, say the mythosaur decided to, to know, right? go back to sleep. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that horror. last shot of the mythosaur was him like, "You guys keep it down up there." <laughs> yeah, exactly. right. Yeah, there's, when there's you're in bed, you're you're in your you're like cozy little nook. You're like, "I'm not getting up. I'm not, yeah. not for nothing." Ragnar has such bad luck with animals too, so it's good that. That's the what I said. <laughs> I was like, "Dude, I mean, don't, we need to have time. a talk about this kid." <laughs> and the fact that, like, every time he's around, we get sea creatures, we get creatures from the air. Is Thumbs it like is, is it the soap he's using? What is I it? bet. I <laughs> bet. Something like that, yeah. But, yeah, to have Ragnar in there now, and I think we said a couple of weeks ago, we should have known maybe Paz's fate 
was coming to you know a bad end there unfortunately last week like that was that was heartbreaking yeah and um, it was so beautiful though it was just it was. so right the guard the praetorian guards looked really cool and it was yeah a, it was a tough death but it was it was a nice sacrifice for him Good as for everyone to get away. yeah he could have used a hammer that's all i'm saying <laughs> yeah i honestly thought well, he was going to get out of it <laughs> yeah well, i love um, that it sort of came it was such a beautiful um arc for his character too and um Tate Fletcher, who does the, you know, he's in the suit for, for Paz. He's such an extraordinary human being. Mm. Um, and knowing him has really influenced how I think about the armor and Paz. And, um, and one of the things that we both said was that it, it's not that Paz really, he didn't change his views because he has always felt He's always had a great sense of loyalty to fellow Mandalorians. It's just that at the beginning, he didn't really accept Din as a Mandalorian. And to see, you know, in that very first season, I think in the third episode, where he's the one that steps up and he's like, how can we accept this guy? And then to have this come full circle and he is willing to sacrifice his life, um, partly because of Din, you know, um, it's just so beautiful. And he's, he's uh, as Tate, Tate, uses the phrase hold the line a lot and um and that's exactly what he's doing and it's just so beautiful to see because you know we we sympathize with din at the beginning and we don't know who paz is and we think he's this big bully um but it's because we're on the the hero side and then to finally have this understanding i think of how deep his loyalty runs and how much he is willing to sacrifice it was just such a beautiful ending for that character yeah he almost and got I the dark saber too. Yeah. Almost, almost, almost. <laughs> I think I saw you post on social media last week that you shared the credits with him. Um, was yeah. that was that like a only one time thing, or had that happened before? Or I don't think it's happened before. Okay, um, that's really cool. Yeah, I don't think it, it's been really cool this season because they have they have included more people. You know, it's such a weird. I don't know all of the the legal background of it, but it's a weird thing the way like credits are done on a show. And sometimes it has to do with like what you've negotiated in your contract. And sometimes it has to do with like all these nitpicky things that have nothing to do with what we're seeing as the audience and like who we think is important in the story. And so um, for a while, like Brendan and Latif were not listed in that main list of credits at the end. I think this is the first season that 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 has happened where they haven't been listed like as stunt performers or, you know, um, doubles or something like that. They're just straight up in the credits. And um, I, to, I know that Tate and I have never shared like the same title card. Um, and so for that to happen in that episode was really special because I think it it's it, it with the actors who do body work, but for whom there's another person doing the voice work. Like sometimes they don't get listed in the credits. It's all very weird. Um, and so that I think was done very intentionally to honor the incredible work that Tate has done, even though like we're not hearing his voice, he has brought so much to that character. Right. So that that's like, that's really cool that in his final, I don't want to say his final episode, because who knows, like maybe who know, knows right? what happened. It, it's maybe Star Wars. You never know. Oh, yeah. Uh, Especially just like a flashback or something. But anyway, as Vizsla clones. No. Go, yeah. Oh, clones. I know. I know do we really later. think that those um, 
Moffat Gideon clones are all gone. I don't. The stash game thing. Well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no, easy. I slept on it a bit, and I was like, you know what? Why would they introduce clones not to have like one slip away somewhere? Like, yeah. it's Chekhov's clones. You can't introduce the clones <laughs> and not have them. You know, They're hanging over the fireplace. <laughs> exactly. That's good. Yeah, I mean, the data has to get to. Um, uh, to Hux, so you know, like, like at That's some true. point that has to happen. And to be clear, I'm not saying this because I know anything. Of course this not. Is pure no. speculation. I don't think. Yeah. I hope. I. I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel about all that. That was. I, I was cool to see the Dark Trooper suit again, because mm -hmm. uh, like that was in the final level of Dark Forces, like the Imperial Moffat, like the bad guy of that game, literally has a Dark Trooper suit. It's like the final build of the thing, and like that was kind of lacked at lacking at the end of season two. It was cool to see see Giancarlo again with that. Like he really, he just he's such a great villain. Oh, he, he does is. such great work. Jack, did you say man. Dark Forces? I was gonna say I thought we were gonna make it a whole episode. Of Dark <laughs> I think I wasn't gonna make a Dark Forces reference if I could. There it Check is. And this this was served to you on a silver platter. I mean, you had to talk about that. <laughs> so to circle back to, because I think one of the most interesting things this season was definitely the rise of Bo-Katan, and you know even the armor kind of rising with her to unite. Mandalore and Din, but like we get this shot here of you passing the torch to um, Bo-Katan. Yeah. And like that's mm -hmm. such a great image with everyone watching, um, both unhelmeted and helmeted. Like, I don't know. Um, but what, when the armor was in the old forge on Navarro in the little basement there, whatever you want to call it, uh, and she calls Bo down to meet with her and it's like, hey, you need to, we need you to lead us. Like, how did the armor see the rise of Bo-Katan? And even like another question morphed into that was when Bo tells the armorer that she saw the mythosaur, what is like, we don't, we can't see the armorer's reaction under her helmet. And she's super chill. Like, or you're super chill about it under there. <laughs> Just like, yeah, this is the way. Like, what are, what do you think her reaction is to that? Because that's a pretty groundbreaking thing to hear. Yeah. Well, we talked about that. Um... Right. And the mythosaur is something, you know, back in the book of Boba Fett, Boba Fett, Boba Fett, <laughs> um, the armor says that, that the songs of Eon past uh, spoke of the mythosaur, but it exists only in, in myths. And I don't think it's really, I mean, what we decided was, um, you know what, it's, it's not important whether or not the armor thinks that Bo actually saw a mythosaur. Because even if she thinks she did, and she has now been willing to come present herself to this covert helmeted mm -hmm. um, to humble herself that way, and to make herself vulnerable, really, to say, like, I think I saw a mythosaur. And she's already saved Din. Like, she's presented all of these qualities that are the makings of somebody who could lead. And she showed that, like, she doesn't want to wear a helmet all the time, but she's willing to do it when she's come. I think that it's just sort of like, okay, there's the practical aspect of this person clearly has the makings to be a good leader. And... There's a little bit of the, I don't know, the, the, 
it's like a, a prophecy almost. The the armorer, I think, is somebody who who looks for clues all the time and um mm. and looks for signs. And so to have it's not it's not accidental that Bo is the person to bring up the mythosaur in this moment. And um and just that she has the potential to believe. I think is very telling in that moment. And so I think that that is another piece of the puzzle of who could be somebody who could bring us together. And that's, you know, one of the ways that she starts to present herself that way. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I don't know if the, if the armor <laughs> like really believes her, like that she truly saw it because, right. you know, maybe she thinks Bo was hallucinating maybe, but she had a vision of some sort, even if she didn't see it. Yeah. And she doesn't say it in a way that feels like, you know, and this is a tribute to Katie's incredible acting. You know, she says it in a way that is so sort of vulnerable. And it's not like she's trying to get something out of it. It's not like, hey, I saw the mythosaur. So, you know, you better do something special for me. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't really know what it means. She's sort of unsettled by it. Yeah, that whole like yeah. two episode arc there when she goes to um you know meet with the children of the watch and everyone she's very unsettled you can kind of tell she doesn't have the same swagger she did and then she gets that back yeah. you know um by the end and i think that's a good point you make about the mythosaur that it doesn't really matter it kind of goes with the dark saber and this episode mm. gets crushed uh which was very surprising but once again like you don't need that to be the leader not and, at this um, point yeah yeah I so. mean, and that sort of goes back to what we were talking about, like with the helmets and with the armor really sticking to that rule at the beginning and then sort of shifting away from that. This external thing um, has come to get in the way of what it is supposed to symbolize internally. And so it's best to kind of just do away with it, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You don't need the dark saber, but you do need the talking stick. Yes. <laughs> I, I love that they use that the hammer is my uh, favorite. Uh, I know. Do you think that's gonna be adopted by the broader Mandalorian culture? Like we're gonna see Mandalore in a hundred years and everybody's gonna have like the hammer to speak in front of people and stuff like that. I'd love that. <laughs> well and then like which hammer is is allowed to be used? Like can it just be any hammer? Because then everyone's gonna be walking around with a hammer. I don't yeah, see a problem true. with that. <laughs> well, hey, Jack has plenty to give out. So. Hey, 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 you watch it. <laughs> These are ours. These are for the foundlings. <laughs> so uh, to go back to the whole spies thing, because I think that's very interesting. And people are very confused by that. But I know a lot of people on the internet, uh, and Matt pointed me in this direction. Matt, if you kind of want to take the, the talking hammer here with this. Oh, thank the you. whole spies just, thing. Just oh. yeah. I'll just uh, uh, pass it to you here. <laughs> he oh, gets the wrong side. <laughs> I, I never gets the right side. Um, no, so the you know the spies. A lot of people thought that meant literal spies, um, but it's actually you know in reference to the biblical story of the twelve spies yes. who go to the land of Canaan from the Israelites to scout out the land and see if they you know it's it's worthy of returning to, um, hmm. and you know that's a pretty deep cut. For John Favreau to make like that's yeah. that's that's relying a lot on the people to kind of figure that out and put the pieces together. I personally think that is insanely, obviously very clever. That kind of storytelling where it's like a mix of both cultures, and they show up to Mandalore and they're checking it out, seeing if it's you know 
on the up and up um, is way it's I, I think that's just way cooler than oh somebody's a spy and they're gonna and they're gonna tattle on you like uh, and, well that's why I was so shocked because I had no idea that it would be interpreted that way because when we and I think before I even knew what the episode was called um, when I got that script I, I made that connection um, just because of my my faith background and and um, you know reading the Bible and I was like oh this is so cool because this is kind of like you know it could be pulling from that where the the Israelites like you said like go and they're they're checking out Canaan before they can decide if the whole people can be moved there you know is it a safe place can we trust this and they are called spies um, and then and John you know he I think that he does I mean he loves cultural myths and cultural stories and and. I know that he has pulled from, um, from Jewish stories. Um, and, uh, and there is, you know, a, a feeling of universality to that. Um, but I had no idea that people would interpret it as, oh, well, we know that there's this one spy and now this episode is titled spies. So there must be another spy. And I didn't even realize that it could be put together that it would look like the armorer was a spy and so i was so shocked when that sort of exploded after that episode to the point that i had to go i had to like go back because you know we shot this a year ago and i had to go back and look at my script and look at my scenes for the last episode and i was like is there any way that they could be setting me up and i don't even know you know they were pulling like a Luke skywalker thing or something oh there you go um, and I was like, no, no, they're not. And I also just felt like, I felt like it would be such a deep, deep blow to undermine a character who does have so much integrity and who has been such a, a, a moral center. Um, that would just yeah. hurt. Like, I, yeah. I don't think it would be worth the shock value. So, but it was, it was pretty fun. Cause I was at a convention this last weekend after that episode aired and like half the people that came up to my table, they were like, okay, so tell me. Or they were like looking at me kind of shifty or they were like team armor or you're not a spy. I'm telling and you, you're it's just the like, horns. what does that mean? Yeah, people took <laughs> so much stock in the horns and the design. It's the horns. Yeah. Well, and people are so quick to be cynical, right? Like that they would yeah. so quickly go like, oh, well, yeah, she must. To be fair, I never thought you were the spy, even though coming into the season, I, I wasn't. Even though you didn't really like me that much. You didn't think I I was clever enough to be a spy. No, no. (laughs) Oh, oh. I thought it was X. I thought it was X Woes for the record. I love this redemption arc for AJ over the course of the season. It's it's so perfect because all season this was a thing. (laughs) And it seems like each week I would ask someone, hey, what do you think of the armorer? Like, what do you think of the children of the watch? I used to say, what do you think of the cults? But then I changed it. And now, like, who better to ask about that than you? So, like, it's been been a redemption arc, I guess. beautiful no chad is lying in the chat i did not think the armor was the spy i thought (laughs) apologies to axe as well um he was yeah yeah i i also thought axe was uh, the spy i was like no there's no way the armor because like you said like you've been holding down and mando culture for like 30 plus years like you don't and you bash stormtroopers like there's no way you're gonna then work with them no that's that's, that just doesn't make any sense for you um i'm curious uh because you had a pretty extended scene with grogu uh, two things. Uh, I wanted to know, uh, A, um, 
what was it like working with the Grogu anim and animatronic? Because like, God, that thing is so cute. And B, <laughs> uh, do you think the armor goes through flashbacks every time she forges something? Because it yeah. seems, I don't know, is that like an area of effect thing, do you think? Like, what's your theory? <laughs> um, working with Grogu is always a trip because, um, I mean, he's a stinking puppet. And you forget that because he's so adorable. And because the people who are controlling him are so masterful at making him react just the right way. But it's also comical because, you know, he's this little guy and the team that is operating the puppet are these like large men <laughs> who wear, I mean, especially, oh my gosh, especially when he was inside IG-12, we had um, Mike, we had the one of the puppeteers who had to wear the IG-12 rig in front of him. He had this thing over his shoulders and he had weights on his back to counterbalance it. Yeah. And he had to walk everywhere that IG-12 was walking. And, um, and I said, I was like, you need to market this as a, like, as a, a workout method because <laughs> you would get a lot of fans who would subscribe. You just send them their own IG-12 suit that they have to wear. And you know, you're carrying like 50 pounds of weight with you doing all these movements all for the sake of this little green guy. But like in that, you know, in the episode when, when, um, when the armorer takes Din, Din Grogu into <laughs> her, for, for that forging sequence where he has the, the flashbacks and he's like walking behind her into the cave. <laughs> I'm glad that we <laughs> because I was like, I wonder how long it takes them to walk down to oh, the forest. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but these you had little bitty Grogu, and then you had these two like six foot tall men on either side of him who were having to like do the puppet and walk alongside and shuffle very quickly. And then you know they get CGI'd out, or there's there. I always say that Mike is like the drunk guy at the party because he's always having to like lie underneath a table so that he can do the puppeteering or lie under a bench or like crouch in a corner somewhere. Um, and then you have people on remotes who are, there's one person doing his ears. There's one person doing his eyes. There's one person doing, I guess his head. Um, and it's just, it's, and, and it takes so long to do his scenes because you have to do it with, with the puppet, then you have to do like a clean plate so they can do CGI stuff afterwards. And then sometimes you do it like we never know when we're going to have access to because we were always shooting like two units at the same time, two different episodes. And so we had to have the right Grogu because there's a Grogu that just sits there. There's a Grogu that moves. And he's for not being a living, breathing human being. He's the biggest diva on set. Oh. He takes the most time for everything. So disappointed to hear that. <laughs> I'm not impressed at all. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. But then there's so many fun moments with him. Um, I mean, in the last episode where he's he's getting his title, Din Grogu, and we were doing that sequence where he gazes at himself in the water and the camera was just on him. But Brendan and I were in there as, as Din Djarin and, and the armorer and... Um, and had, it didn't matter that we were off camera. Like, I, I don't know why most of the time we only goof off when we're not on camera, even though, like, why does it matter? Because you can't see our mouths move. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they're recording our dialogue. Um, but I had, like, Grogu singing to himself in the water. Like, he was singing, I feel pretty. <laughs> and we just have so much fun making fun of him. 
Should have kept that in. <laughs> Season four, a musical. Uh, oh, yeah. There you definitely. go. No. Grogu on ice. There we oh, go. Yes. There we go. Oh, I like that. First, he learns how to speak, then he gets his chops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What if, what if he's gone from just like cooing to just like full out musical numbers? Hey, like, Dad. Does, does, he sing, does he sing like Yoda? Does he have to sing backwards? Who made it? He did not when I was um, providing the inspiration. Okay. okay. That's, that's canon. That's I think canon. you're the biggest authority on that right now. Yeah. So we'll go yeah, I think so. Yeah, it'll really broke the mold. It's cool to hear about how all that works with the puppeteering for, for Grogu. Because, I mean, to have him be pretty much practical, it, it looks great. Um, yeah. On this show, we're kind of a big fan of Puppet Yoda. Because um, yes. the prequels, and they went back and kind of changed episode one around, but the prequels had CG Yoda, and that was one thing. But we always loved the the practicality of it, having uh, yeah. Puppet Yoda. So Puppet Grogu looks uh, looks great. Um, yep, I'll always take Puppet Grogu, even if it takes him 20 minutes to walk into the room. <laughs> I absolutely, I love that you brought that up, because that was one of the, my biggest questions this season. The, the armor strolls into the forge, and then you just see Grogu just hop, 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 like very slowly, and it's like... She just waiting for him, or like, what's what's going on? She's probably built an entire set of armor while she's waiting. <laughs> Honestly, she's like I'm just gonna get some of my my back work done, um, and you know, I'll wait for this guy. But yeah, it was funny when we were shooting that because they were talking about like, okay, what shots do we need to get for this scene and what coverage? And at some point, somebody's like, well, we need to get Grogu like walking into the room, and somebody was like, no, we don't. That's gonna take forever. Just make him appear. <laughs> Yeah, because yeah, it brings up questions. too many questions. Too many questions. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie, I know... like a... Oh, sorry, Jack, you go ahead. Go ahead, Jack. I was just going to um, point out, like, like at the yeah. end, it was like, uh, the, like the way he waddled into the... I, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> me up. His legs were flying. Um, Jamie, I know you had... It's not really an armor thing, but with this episode, you had a really good take about Grogu when he's yeah. with the Praetorian Guards. Um, yeah. With that whole thing. So, like, one thing I've absolutely loved this season um, with Grogu is how he's developed using the Force. Um, because he's always either been very aggressive with it to the point where he passes out, um, or uh, he's still, like, learning about it. And so I love how, especially in these, like, past few episodes, he's he's using it for defense, and pretty much defense only. Like, he's shoving weapons out of the way, he's protecting Din, and he's protecting Bo-Katan. And I, I love every single time that he, like, showcases that and i it just goes to reflect like um how much like he cares about everyone else that is raising him so the armor included and everyone in in the children of the watch as well and like i love seeing how he's developed as a little mandalorian jenna somehow yeah, yeah since he's it's time so with true because he yeah. you know when he first found that he had this power he I mean, he didn't know how to use it and he's been willing to to i love that he's been able to to uh, I guess he's another one who walks both worlds, um, the Jedi world and the, the Mandalorian world, and he's and he you know he could use it to show off a whole lot more, and we didn't see him doing that this season, and that was pretty cool. Yeah. Just a couple yeah. times, like doing flips like around like Ragnar with like the paintballs, like that was. Ragnar sort of had it coming. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know you could do all three in one round. I think the rules should have been explained before we started this duel. There are no rules. Except you have to wear it. I've been curious because uh, I love accents. And uh, like the, the one that you've chosen for the armor is just so enigmatic. Um, is there like a particular di particular dialect that you chose to to model it after? Or is it just like what comes to mind? Or Well, it's British-ish because um, 
when I auditioned, they they were apparently they were mostly seeing British actors, and so they asked me, um, they being <laughs> to be clear, like the one person I, I went in for one audition with the casting associate. Um, they put me on tape, and that was it. Um, so I never like met with anybody else until like a few days before we were shooting. Um, And they asked me to do a British dialect because they were seeing British women in their fifties and sixties for the role. Um, and, uh, and so he, he said, you know what, you should probably do a take with the dialect just because that's what they have been seeing just to see which one they like better. And then John, um, wanted to keep it or some semblance of it. So it's, you know, I think about it being British, but I'm not thinking about any specific place or region or whatever. I do want it to be sort of vague because it just Mm. gives her, like you said, it makes her a little more mysterious. It makes her, um, it it sets her apart from everybody and that just feels right. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, Concordian accent, we'll say. Yeah. yeah, I love the way she says Grogu. It's like the, the best pronunciation. I, I It's weird to say I love the way she says it, but you're the one that says it. So. Yeah. Kind of weird. But, um... <laughs> I do that too. I mean, I talk about her in the third person all the time. Right. Um, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> but like we've talked about the armor here, um, obviously, because we have you here. Um, but what was like your thoughts as a viewer, you know, watching this season and, and even this episode, this finale? I, I mean, my, I was so excited this season to see a lot of those questions about um, whether or not there could be reconciliation amongst the Mandalorians to see that played out in real time. And I, I loved seeing the redemption of, of Bo's character. I love seeing that there could be somebody who had, you know, risen to great heights and made some mistakes and uh, who'd sort of given up. And then ultimately, because she can't help but help somebody else when she goes to rescue Din, she set off on this other course, um, which is sort of sort of mirroring, I think, what Din went through in season one, because he, when we first met him, he's determined to be this lone ranger. He doesn't want to depend on anyone. He doesn't want anyone depending on him. And then in spite of himself, he cares about this weird little green guy and you know he's feeling the pangs of obligation and and wanting to to be selfless and to help him and through that finds um all these other incredible connections i mean like seeing the arc that grief karga has gone through since season oh, one is hilarious <laughs> to me because yeah, partly true. just because like Carl is, I, I love Carl so much. And so, you know, seeing him go from being so tough and bad to to now being this guy who's like, I mean, he's almost like Moses in one of the episodes where he's like leading his very small um, community yeah. out. Surprisingly small. I kept saying like, there's not that many people who live in Navarro. Maybe they maybe all the just bunkered in. I'm yeah, they, they got lost. Ellen's did. Yeah, I so. felt the same way. I really needed more people in that shot. <laughs> but it is thriving. It is thriving. He it's totally thriving. That's clear. It's thriving. You have to believe him. <laughs> so thriving. Droids carrying his cape. You got to believe him. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> Just like to total side note, I love how you keep referring to Grogu as Green Guy because um before like we knew what his name was, um I always have just called him Green Guy. Like I I like outright refuse to call him Baby Yoda. And so like just okay. like hearing like this like validation that you also just refer to him as Green Guy. I'm just like, "Please, thank you. Like it's it's Green Guy and Green Guy only. Like I only own like two Green Guys, you. the big one and then this like little one. And like he's Green Guy. That's who he is." <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're not wrong yeah but uh the finale here you know mandalorians are united um you you pass the torch to bo katan uh x woves yells for mandalore everyone seemed to love that line uh it was cool and then lighting that big forge which um yeah. maybe we can assume that you know we'll be seeing you using that i don't know who knows i can only assume but i sure don't know yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah it would make sense i mean it's the forge and that's that's your uh that's your thing so yeah but it was just it was well, so cool to see all that yeah definitely it wrapped up with such a bow so it's like the the, the it really could go anywhere from here because like that just ending in that like the little looney tunes like, like spotlight <laughs> yeah. on, on grogu that was something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah i mean this definitely felt like it wrapped up in arc like yeah. for everybody like everybody who's involved kind of gets like their kind of happy ending i mean really other than paz but everybody else <laughs> it's an um, ending <laughs> it's an ending yeah you know it's a, it's an ending. it's neat it doesn't have to be happy i guess but uh you know it's just funny that i was not expecting the armor to have an arc this season especially the one she got so and that's you know that's on that's that's on you you did that so good job thank you oh <laughs> Uh, did you guys have any other questions um, for Emily for you know, the Mandalorian? Because I, I had a couple other that don't have to do with the Mandalorian. Um, I guess one other question I had. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'll be quick. Uh, one other question I had was just like, what is, out of all the scenes you've done, what's your favorite scene? Because this character has to be fun to play. Now you're going to ask your favorites again. I have to ask favorites. Oh. But you did you so well room. with the other favorites question. So you're, you're going to nail this one too. Yeah. Oh, golly. I mean, well, it depends on whether I'm looking at, you know, there's a difference between, especially with this character, there's a difference between how it feels shooting it versus what it, how satisfying it is in the end. Um, because it is often, it can often be really awkward <laughs> to shoot because of my limited vision and limited range of motion. And, um, and because it's such a technical show, there's a lot of stopping and starting. Oh, man. I mean, there were so many that I really enjoyed this season. I loved that scene um, in Peter Ramsey's episode where where I did ask Bo to remove her helmet. And um, and it did. I mean, it partly because it felt so I felt like even in the playing of it, the two of us were sort of like, I wonder what's going to happen here. Because she's sort of feeling out Bo still, you know? She doesn't know if, like, how she's going to respond to that. Yeah. Um, and it was just really cool to have this scene between these two um, incredible women who are both strong leaders and who apparently a lot of people expected to fight, who we get to see, like, hunker down. And when they're in this little room together, they come to this understanding of, all right, we can work together. I mean, they don't even know exactly what that means. They're just going to try it because the armor doesn't know if Bo's going to be successful at, at walking both worlds. Like there could be, as Bo herself says, when she goes back to these other 
Mandalorians that she's been associated with before. She doesn't know if they're going to accept her. So it's a gamble. And also the armor doesn't know if her own people are going to get really ticked off that she's let her remove her helmet. So I, I loved that as sort of a, a fulcrum um, for that. I mean, for a lot of the, the like, sort of, that was a big turning point, I think, in the season. Um, but then, like, just for, I mean, it was so much fun to shoot and so satisfying to shoot that scene in the living waters at the end because the set was like this huge beautiful like cave-like oh, cool. room and we were in this pool of mm. water and we actually oh my gosh we went through that um the helmet ceremony that you that you and like the the you know almost like a baptism i guess that you see me do with ragnar i actually went through that for about six different characters um oh really and with reciting that creed and having them repeat it back to me and it took a real long time mm. and each of those actors who were playing those characters like some of the mandalorian survivors um bo-katan um and so it really felt like when we were shooting those days like we were all sort of in this sacred place um and then but but the whole time we were also kind of like are they really going to use all this and rick who was directing was equally going i don't think we're going to be able to use all this but we're going to shoot it um and it was one of those one of those things where even though you don't see it as the audience i'm actually really glad that we went through it because it was cool to have that that feeling of ceremony and for all of us to experience that and to really think about, okay, well, who would have been a part of this larger ceremony? And then at the end of it, like, I think it was perfect that, that we got to see Ragnar because we got to see him finally have the end of the, his, his little ceremony and then have that moment with Grogu and with Din. It was just such a special experience. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And then the Grogu musical number. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's, the, <laughs> right that's the credit scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I I have to ask, even though um, I understand if you can't answer a question like this, um, because it might be a little bit too much of a question. Um, but regarding like the whole living water scene with the baptism, um, I thought it was a little interesting that there wasn't any mention of Paz of like honoring him at the end. Was there anything that you guys possibly filmed, or even like it was just like in like remembrance, like honored him in any sort of way during that sequence? Maybe. <laughs> Okay, that's fair. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> I, again, I understand. <laughs> but yes, that's I think that like, the oh, whole sorry, like yeah. Ragnar baptism was like I think honoring him enough because it also yeah. was like in, like fully having him involved. But um, that's something I wish that they like added a little bit more into. So <sighs> yeah, I miss him. <laughs> something I just remembered that I wanted to kind of bring up was the the other group of Mandalorians we meet that are on Mandalore. I call them like the pirate. Mandalorians because they had a little pirate ship, I guess. Yeah, the survivors. Uh, yeah. yeah. And um no I forget their character's name. I was calling there's the one skinny Pete from Breaking Bad. We just yeah. kept calling him that. Yes. But um <laughs> he had like a a battle droid a B2 battle droid. I'm getting over nerdy here, but as a <laughs> uh, a pauldron on his shoulder. And I thought that was just a really cool touch. Um I wonder what the armor would think of that, but it was cool. It was cool to see well, those those mandos. 
that's uh, something that him and Din have in common because the that thigh play, I spent you know like hours trying to figure out where that came from when season two was happening. That's from Q90. Like he had that hanging up in the back of the Razor Crest, and he really? just ripped that thigh plate off and just stuck it on him. Yeah, well, wow. I did not know that. That's really cool. So I think I think uh, like you know, and and like he had a shore trooper pauldron before, so it's like you know, like I think for Mando's like scavenging what you can if you can't get Beskar is good enough at some at times. It's a Mando skill. Yeah. Um, somebody had a good question for you. Um, our friend Angel asks, um, like, is there any challenge of acting through a helmet? Because is this really the only role you've had to do that for? Like, and is, mm-hmm. you know, not be able to show your facial expressions. And Matt, I think you even had a, a question on our list about acting that way. Because you kind of have to act a different way, I imagine. Um, yeah, you're the not only be able one. To show your face. Except yeah. for Katie, I guess. Yeah. yeah is that kind of like um, a challenge? It used to be much more of a challenge, but it's just part of the character now. So I don't think about it that way. Um, and it was, it's really, to me, it's not, it doesn't feel like I'm like my approach to the character is still the same. It's just putting more thought into what will communicate best and what will be most truthful for her. Um, because you have someone whose face is obscured and it could go, it could go a number of ways. It could be that that person, because they know you can't see their face, they might be even more expressive with their hands. They might move around a lot more. They might like try to show you more. Um, And that was, that definitely didn't feel right for her. Um, And it was, it was such a pleasure at the beginning of shooting the series to we, we had a little bit of a sandbox where we were all trying to figure that out. All of us who were in armor um, because it's also, I, I have done mask work before for theater, but I've never done it on camera. And I feel like that is a different thing because when you're on stage, the audience can see your entire body all the time. And so you, you get to control whether you're going to pull focus if there's something that you need them to know. But when you're on camera, you don't know when they're going to cut to you. You don't know if they're going to use like a tight close up or if they're going to use a wider shot. And I think when you're when you can't see someone's face, you're that much more focused on their movements. And so the, the physical movements become very important and can become very distracting. And that was something that became apparent early on, too. If if I shifted too much, if I fidgeted or like if I, you know, you can't like look down to check where you're going because it just looks distracting. Um, And she is somebody who I think trusts the stillness and trusts space in conversations and, you know, space. It's okay to her if people don't know exactly where she's coming from all the time. Um, And so that was an interesting thing to sit with and and felt, felt uncomfortable at first just because like I'm I'm not like that in real life at all. I, I am somebody who's like constantly moving around and and um, I use my face a lot. And and so I had to really be patient and um, and really trust that what I was thinking and what I was feeling would come across without me needing to like show it. And I found that to be true. And then I found if it was a little more um, and 
not ambivalent. That's not the word I'm looking for. It was a little more obscured and it wasn't entirely clear. Maybe that was okay because I think it's, it's great that we don't always know exactly what the armorer is thinking. I think that that's, that works for that character. So, um, yeah. So yeah, it was a different, I mean, it was a really, really cool challenge to take on. I loved that having that obstacle of, of not being able to communicate that way. Um, but I don't really think about it as like, okay, I can't use my face now. Now, especially because I've lived with her for so long, when I put on that suit and when I step into those scenes, I just feel what her physical presence is and the kind of space that she takes up and what her pace is. And, and it feels a lot, a lot more second nature. Very cool. Um, something I just thought of as you were saying all that, and someone kind of mentioned it, that I think you you showed off a video today of you at Fan Expo or some convention where you walked around in the co in a costume yes. as the armorer. How, how it's like, you know, as a cosplayer, and you know, Jack knows all about this. It, walking with around with the helmet, I do have to look at my feet, and I can't walk around. But did any of that acting like help you walk around the whole convention floor like that? And, how was that experience? A, a little bit, yeah. I mean, because I was used to it, but it was also a new environment and, yeah. um, you know, not as controlled an environment as the set. And so I I was much more cautious because I didn't want to, like, run over some kid or <laughs> um, step on somebody. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a little different that way. And I also wasn't as careful. Like, I didn't worry as much about, like, staying in character and not looking down. And, you know, if I needed to check where I was going, I did. Yeah. That was such a that was such a great video. Uh, oh, really so funny, much really, fun! Yeah, such a cool thing. Yeah, um, that's a blast. I'm glad to hear you. Oh, sorry, Jack. I, I was just gonna add. I'm glad to hear that you don't uh, like take it so serious. I've I've learned to start to relax a little bit more with the helmet and stuff as a cosplayer because it's like you know you gotta you gotta take care of yourself first and all yeah. in all seriousness. <laughs> <laughs> let Let me repeat that, Jack. You need to take care of yourself when you're in full costume. Like yeah, we've had many not the many way. experience. Yeah. <laughs> Heat strokes are not the way. No. <laughs> My non-Star Wars question, unless these guys have any other things. Um, no. Well, it, it's a non-Mandalorian question. It is a Star Wars question. Sorry. Okay. Um, that was yeah, I, I was lost in my you mind. You know there what for podcast, a podcast is? I forgot. I forgot. Um, so it's another favorites thing, but I'm going to rephrase it. Other than the Mandalorian, do you have a couple of other favorite Star Wars stories, whether it's films or uh, some of the other shows or whatever. Well, the first one that I, I feel like I latched onto when I was a kid was, um, I mean, I saw Return of the Jedi and and just fell in love with Ewoks. And <laughs> yes. um, Ewoks were totally my jam. Like I, I played Ewok adventures in my backyard and I had little Ewok dolls. And so they've always, they've always been near and dear to me. And, and actually at the convention where I first met Jack, that was yeah. the first time that I'd gotten to meet an Ewok cosplayer. Oh, and I remember that with I Colleen. Remember the oh, Colleen. They were oh. so excited. Oh, it was so incredible because I, I'd never met a real it's Ewok wild. before. <laughs> yeah. and it just totally took me back to being like six years old. And um, it was magical. And then um, at this at this last celebration, I got to meet um, Warwick Davis, who, who you know was oh. 11 years old when he played an Ewok in Return of the Jedi. And I got to tell him how special that was for me. And and I mean, look, his career is absolutely incredible. The range of characters that he's gotten to play. But um, I think now that I'm doing Star Wars, I have a new appreciation for like, oh my gosh, how magical it would have been to be 11 years old 
on a Star Wars set. Yeah. Yeah, he was a lucky kid for sure. Talk about, uh, we're going to have to share that with Colleen. That's you know yeah. Yeah. Well, That's I'll have to find um I know that there's a good handful of photos um from one of those first conventions because obviously Jack had met you, but like AJ and I were also in attendance. Matt was not. Um, but we were also in attendance <laughs> and we, we missed you by like, like that much. We were just like in the other direction. I have oh, man. I have a wonderful photo. I'll post it later of um you looking in one direction and AJ is literally just looking the other way. It, it, you guys are like right <laughs> was, next to I was other. stressed out or something. And I'm I like, didn't know what was going on. <laughs> Conventions are a lot. Um yeah, but yeah, I'll have to find all of those. So we'll share them up later. So we can confirm the fur that the armor wears is not Ewok. Right? No, oh, wow. It's <laughs> not. Of course, Ewok. Matt goes there. No. <laughs> <laughs> I love that though. Like everyone we ask, you know, they say like, "Oh, Empire Strikes Back" or whatever. But I love like Ewok Adventures. Like that's that's such a good answer. I love that. Respect. That's a deep yeah. cut. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I think that from here, um, I wanted to do a little bit of a wrap up because we have gone way over our normal time, but it's it's all good. Um, thank you so much, Emily. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on and chat with us right after the finale. And we can't like compliment you enough on the amazing job this season. And just thank oh, you so thank much you. for joining us tonight. Um, and uh, we will grab all of your information as well for the Voices Against Cancer for all your upcoming streams. And we'll drop all of those links. And... Is there anything else that you wanted to add before we fully sign off tonight? I'm trying to think if I'm supposed to say anything. <laughs> nope. <laughs> All, right. All right. That's fine. Don't need to. Um, improper armor or fashion. Well, sometimes it's a little bit less words and we, we understand. It's all good. Um, but yes, thank you so much. Um, thank you guys so much for chatting with us tonight. Thank you to everyone in the chat for being here and hanging out with us tonight. This was yeah. an incredible uh, stream to end the season with. I can't believe Mando season three is over. Um, you can find everything for Holland Up Marauders um, on the social media accounts at Holland Up Marauders. Um, that's where we'll be. Um, thank you everybody so much for joining us this season, and we'll be back in a couple weeks with more Star Wars content. Thank you again, Emily, for joining us tonight, and thank we'll see you, you guys next this was time. Really fun. See you guys next time on the Holland Marauders podcast.